This podcast is brought to you by journalism.co.uk. On the job hunt, check out our job of the week. Hearst Media is looking for a staff writer. For this opportunity and more journalism jobs, head over to journalism.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast with me, Jacob Granger. Each week, we bring you the most interesting stories from around the media industry. And today we are discussing the importance of media literacy and critical thinking in young people. So I am joined by Robin Brinkworth, who is the program manager for The Student View, a media literacy charity that works to ensure all young people become critical media consumers and creators. Robin, thanks very much for joining us. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here pleasure to be speaking with you. Uh, can you start by telling us a little bit about you and the work that you do with The Student View? Sure. So The Student View is a media literacy charity, but we, uh, kind of unusually for a lot of media literacy charities, focus just as much on creation of content as consumption. So the idea is critical media uh, thinking allows kids to, to, well, yeah, perceive the media critically. It's not hard. Um, but we try to get them to create media as well and create real journalism content, real news articles. Um, my own background, uh, I've done some financial reporting, but have, basically this has been my main gig out of uh, out of university. Uh, at university, I was a student reporter doing a lot of FOIs, um, and that skill comes in and really useful from what we do because we can't, can't take the kids out of school when we're getting them to do journalism, but we can get them to file FOIs. We see that the website talks about three main ideas of media literacy that you were focused on addressing in working class kids and teenagers, uh, those being news deserts, uh, misinformation and social exclusion. Uh, In looking at that, is it fair to interpret that the questions are A, are young people coming to the news? B, when they do, can they delineate between true and false? And then C, if they then want to pursue journalism as a career, do they have a fair and open roadmap in which to do so? Is is that a fair assessment? Yeah, so I think I think the, there's a couple of things I just amend there. The the first is that working class peoples and peoples from, from more difficult socioeconomic backgrounds do face greater barriers to, to entering journalism. That's absolutely something we're here to address. Um, but in terms of delineating clearly between between what is real and what is fake um, and between what is biased and what is relatively unbiased, that is not necessarily something that is um, mediated by socioeconomic status. Some of the peoples who are most vulnerable to, to fake news, to misinformation, are those who basically think, you know, I've got it pretty good in life, I'm clever, it's, I'm all good, I'm all set, and actually those are often the peoples we need to work with. In the same way that, you know, in an ideal world, we'd be working with, with everyone across the entire population. We wouldn't just be working with school children. There is a, there is a huge um, problem here of, of a kind of assumed competence, um, and it's something we need to address. Um, the, the biggest factor is what, there's a 2016 stat, which is that 2% of um, of eight to sixteen year olds across the entire UK can spot misinformation, and that's a massive, massive stat. So ninety eight percent of of British school kids can't spot misinformation. That crosses a huge range of socioeconomic backgrounds, geographies, the whole works. And for context sake, Robin, um, how do you explain how we got here? What have you seen in the schools? There is definitely. Um, 
a paucity of critical thinking, uh, particularly when it comes to that. There's no um, media studies curriculum that is that is kind of in the national curriculum that everyone has to do, uh, and particularly media studies as well. I speak like, to numerous media studies teachers who are... Um, on one hand, overjoyed that we're going to be coming into their school, but on the other hand, desperate that, that we're not there already. Um, and they're also quite often very lonely. And these are, these are teachers who love their subject, qualified to teach their subject. That takes years of study. And they've, they've got to that point, and then their school has cut media studies because they can't afford to pay the bills. Uh, and that's, that, that is the unfortunate reality of the situation we're in. And for those media studies teachers, they find it very frustrating because... Um, you know, we are, we are, we're here to address a problem. They're already part of the system, ready to address that issue. But unfortunately, because of what's going on at the minute, they can't, they can't kind of educate the kids they want to. Um, they can't access, there's nice thing in the national curriculum to address that. I mean, there's been some, there's been some chatter here and there. Um, Damien Hines had some proposals a few months ago to bring it into national curriculum, but there is, there's just nothing there at the minute. And, um, and quite frankly, like education reform moves slowly. Well, in the meantime, let's look at the work that you are doing. And you work with quite a few different organisations, Google, Financial Times and uh, YouTube. Uh, what does this involve? Uh, you touched on going into schools. Uh, what, what exactly happens there? Sure. So, so our, our core educational model is, is pretty um, simple, but it does touch on a lot of things. We go into schools and, and run workshops. And we tend, typically run workshops with you know, 10 to 20 kids at a time. Uh, and those workshops are over three days. So one full day, two half days. And that gives us a lot of time with the kids. It's only three days throughout the school year, but actually it's quite unstructured time. So you get to touch on a lot of different stuff as you go. Um, and the idea of those those partnerships, are, they, are, they are slightly different in structure. So the FT, we work, they sponsor schools uh, in London and they bring their, their journalists in as part of the agreement. Um, so... The kids in the schools we're working with in London get to meet an FT journalist. They have a, a little chat about their career, and then the journalist is there for for the duration of the workshop. That can be that can be three hours or more. So there's a lot of kind of interface time there. With Google, the arrangement is slightly different. Um, so they uh, sponsor basically a program where we go in schools which are uh, generally outside of London, uh, and that is the uh, the kind of local news deserts. Um, kind of program that we aim to to address that problem and that that program is uh, a two-year pilot we're coming into our second year of it now we're in 15 schools last year we're coming into 15 schools this year as well um, and the aim of that local news pilot and it's something we're bringing over probably to, to all of our all of our programs is that we get kids to do to create real news. We had previously had a model where we had kids write listicles, features and, and opinions in a very very kind of one a session kind of let's get kids writing. That's that's got a traditional literacy focus, which is which is hugely important, not to be underestimated. But we're kind of thinking, okay, how can we get more value out of the time that we're in schools? And there's also YouTube, right? That was a collaboration we did for an event last year, and we're looking to, to, to renew it or, or do something there again. It was a one-off in, not in isolation, uh, but basically we brought uh, kids from a bunch of our workshops, um, kids from Hastings, Manchester, Oldham, Liverpool, uh, as well as some schools in London, uh, and brought them into the same space as um, some of the great and the good. So Christian Giri Murthy, Chris Shaw, uh, Claudia Liza Armour, 
uh, it wasn't just ITA, ITN folks either. We had James Harding there. Uh, we had folks from The Guardian. Uh, the idea is simply to bring people who may not have access to, to school kids um, and, and give them a sense of what's going on in these kids' lives. Um, and just get them talking to each other. And so this is this is kind of one of the the many strands of what we do. That event was very much focused on on the interface between uh, journalism uh, and and school children. But yes, kids don't get access to journalists, and they don't see how journalism works. But also, uh, journalists don't see how kids think. And it's not to say that journalists are ignorant of how kids think. It's just that. If you're a journalist and you're probably most likely middle class, you're probably white, you're probably like me, privately educated. We brought some some kids from Hastings up to up to this event with YouTube, um, and they they stopped off by Starbucks uh, because some of those kids had never seen a Starbucks before. They'd never been to a Starbucks before, so they went out of their way and they arrived late at the event, which is fine, not a problem, because they wanted to stop off at a Starbucks as a kind of we need to go to a Starbucks because we're in London. Like, that's a, that was a big deal for them. And that's the kind of world some of these kids are living in. That kid, that's, that's quite an extreme example. But it is, it is kind of perspective-altering when you hear that and when you go, OK, these kids are not necessarily from the same background as me. How can we address this? And I'm not just saying that personally, but I'm saying that as an industry. How can we, how can we, open, the, how can we open the industry to those perspectives? That's really what we're trying to do here. And by doing that, what kind of a transformation have you seen uh, in these young people? Uh, thinking about the key tenets of why the student view was set up um, that we that we touched on. There's, there's been multiple different bits of it. We um, have worked with kids on the very edge of the age, educational map, people who are who are close to going to people referral units or PRUs, uh, which is a uh, to put it bluntly, an educational death sentence. Um, and we have managed to re-engage them in traditional education. That's part of what we do. The idea is you can talk about what you want. Um, we have safeguarding, you know, the appropriate safeguarding stuff in place, but we are able to talk much more freely uh, than a pupil would normally be able to in their traditional school lessons. And that means they can go, oh, wait, I'm actually interested in writing for the first time. I can write about whatever I want. I can write about the fact that I'm worried about my friends taking drugs. I can write about the fact that uh, my youth centre got shut down uh, a year ago and nothing's come in to replace it. I can write about the fact that my caseworker at my local CAM centre is on holiday and I haven't had any replacement for three months. Uh, now, all of those stories are pretty much real. Um, there are other ones we've been working on where we have had you know, kids working on really serious topics, so, you know, around you know, sexual assaults and um, things like that. There is obviously a huge amount of safeguarding work that goes into, into keeping things kind of safe for the kids and appropriate, but because they can engage in those topics, they engage with the education system because we're in their school, we're talking to them. I go, yeah, I'm not a teacher, I'm a journalist, but the teachers are there working with the kids, they're helping out. Suddenly, this person who's a figure of authority is actually like a figure of someone, I'm trying to help you out. They're, they're suddenly on side. Because we're FOIing, because that's the only way we can get kids to do journalism because we can't take them out of school, it's just administratively too difficult. We can, we can say to them, you're FOI, you, you have a right to this information. You, despite the fact that you are a 13-year-old school kid who's been arrested half a dozen times, you can demand that information and they legally have to give it to you. Um, and that is the, um, that's a huge thing for some kids, being like, wait, the police have to take me seriously. 
it really makes a difference. And some of, the, some of the best stories I've had is just the grins on these kids' faces when they realise, oh, wait, someone in authority is taking me seriously. That has a huge impact on them. Um, and it's one of the things, we are only a three-day intervention, you know, and that is those three days are spread out over months. So I'm not saying we are kind of completely changing these kids' worlds. I'm not claiming that. But we can, we can re-engage these kids. We do a lot of work around those spaces. And what about when they see their story published and they see their byline on, on a story online. Um, you know, they are talking about big topics, as you touched on, as drug crime and uh, hate crimes. You know, that must, be, that must be transformative for them when they see that all of this isn't hot air, basically. Uh, there are avenues for them to be talking about these things in, in their everyday lives. Yeah, so this is one of the things. So when we're in the workshops, we, we say that we will try and get your work published in the local news. We will try and get it published in regional and national news, but there are no promises. We're very, very clear about that. You know, one of the, one of the cool things about this is we say, look, this is journalism. Journalism can, can fail. Sometimes an article doesn't get published. Sometimes something gets killed. Um, you know, you've got, to, you've got to deal with that, um, with that reality. Um, so... That is hugely exciting for them when we say, look, you will hopefully be published. At a very minimum, they'll be published on our website. Um, and sometimes stories don't happen for, for one reason or another. Um, but the, the, the first tranche of articles, we've had a lot of kids published on our website previously. And the first um, kind of reaction to that when we come back into the school and they've been published is, what? Oh, wow, like, I'm on a website. Like, they're, they're just really, they're buzzing. They're, they've been published on a website. Like, it's cool. Um, and their name's up there. The, um, in terms of the, the publication agreements we've got with, with local press and stuff like that, that stuff is still coming out. So we haven't had a huge amount of reaction from the kids back then because the, the stuff that's being published uh, now is the result of workshops that took place the last academic year. Um, so just because of the nature of, of what we do is, is once we've left the school in terms of getting the kids' articles together... We haven't probably had the chats we would like to have with the kids um, that we were working with last year. But given that we're going back into some of the same schools, um, I'm sure I'll see them and I'm sure I'll be able to, to report back on this. So what do you have to do to convince editors to take on that story? What assurances do you have to give that the piece has been put together, how shall I say, with, with professional standards observed? We essentially are trying to act as close to a newswire as we can. We realise we can't, that's not what we are, but we can be professional about things. And so when we leave a school, we may have a rough draft of a story. We'll probably have an FY back that has a really interesting little kind of uh, tidbit in there and we can work with the kids on that. But we'll probably have something quite rough. And then Grace, my colleague, she and I will work on the story together and we will rewrite or redraft basically the kids' articles. We'll get them checked for legal, we'll get right of reply, um, and then we will package that with the, the, F, the original FOI data sets um, and send that out to, to editors or reporters. Uh, it really depends who we're working with in individual publications. This has been the first year we're doing it, so a lot of our contacts have basically been from people who've been really willing to give up their time to come volunteer in a school, and we said, look, you get free stories off the back of it. Sometimes we call editors and say, look, can you, can you bring in a reporter for a couple of hours? You'll get free stories. And that's the thing, is these stories are free of charge. They've been through legal. Uh, they're pretty bare-bones news stories, so they don't always have a huge amount of comment beside them. But they are, like, the core, the heart of the news story is always there. Um, so, 
you know, we know everyone knows what the um, what the situation is at the local level in terms of in terms of those papers and the viability. Um, so the more we can do to, to aid that, the better. And if we if we're bringing those stories to those local local newspapers from an underserved audience already. Um, it's, it's a win-win for both sides. So Robin, I'm trying to imagine a 13-year-old putting a FOI together um, or, or at least getting them to do it. How exactly does it work? Is it a case of the topic speaking for themselves or do you have to you know, go the extra mile to motivate them and, and make the reporting jump out and jump off the page? We kind of, we're very proud of our model for lots of different reasons, but the, in some ways it is absurdly simple. We, we have a chat to the kids and we sit down and say, OK, what's important to you? And we kind of, here's where I come in as a professional journalist. They may go, oh, I want to talk to the council about um, how terrible my, my mental health is without necessarily realising that, OK, their mental health support is actually through NHS. Or it's that kind of stuff where you can go, OK, you need to talk to that body instead. And, and I come away from those sessions with a written down question. The kid doesn't actually hit send on the FY email themselves. Um, because it means we can chase it up. Basically, I send it. So it means we can chase it up, we can follow it up. Um, so we can come back in and give the FOI to the kid next, next, that next session. That's the point we found where news judgment is really, really interesting because for some kids, they, they struggle there, quite frankly, because they've never had to go, like, where's the story? And you have to walk them through it quite slowly. Other kids really quickly get it, and it's really exciting for them to see it. Um, I mean, it's interesting. Some kids, some kids get quite disappointed when they go, "Oh, like budgets have remained flat, or budgets that no, budget hasn't gone down for whatever, like their youth centre or whatever it is." And they're like, "I thought it had." And I'm like, "Well, this is this is good news for you." But they're they're looking for this story, um, or budgets have gone up, and they're like, "Oh, there's not a story here." They're quite kind of bummed out. And I'm like, "No, this is this is you have better local services than you think you did, um, or crime has gone down, or whatever it is." Um, and actually, that's and one of the things we keep telling them is that's still a story. Sometimes stating facts is um, is enough for a story in its own right, um, even if it's not you know particularly explosive. Actually, the, the, the heart of local stories just is just you know having some solid information, and 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 it means you know you know someone at a local paper can go okay, we may not use this story as a standalone. That's fine, but actually we know. This is really useful. There's a little tidbit in there that we can follow up, maybe for a, for another story or a feature or, or something else down the line. Um, it's just it's just kind of acting as a scout, being like, okay, we've got some information there, some information there. Where can we put everything together? And they put the piece together. They write it. Yeah, that we we help them do that over over the sessions, and we also get them to talk about who do they want to talk to for comment. Um, and that is, you know. Go, you know, go and talk to your local MP. We'll email your local MP on your behalf. A lot of this stuff is we do stuff with them in session, but we kind of have to do a lot of the, the kind of external stuff ourselves. The kid will draft draft the email as much as they can, or the kid will say, "I want to ask this question to this person," but we go away and do it for them and bring it back in. It's it's all in collaboration. We've kind of we've um, we've been going for a few years now. We know how much kids can do. We know how much we know when we have to step in as well. It's it's just kind of treading that line, um, getting the kids to be as active as possible. But when they need support with their agency, just stepping in and going, "Okay, here's how we're going to do it for you. Is that okay?" And also that's the thing is we ask them, "Is that okay? Are you happy with that?" It's not like us kind of like stepping in. It's. Um, saying, you know, how can, we, how can we help you? Is this the way you want to go about your story? Because sometimes I'll suggest, oh, that could be a really interesting story to a kid, and they'll turn around and be like, nah, I don't want to do that. 
Um, and you go, okay, well, how do we rework it to get it to be something you're excited about? And what other parts of the news writing or news gathering process do you think you could expand this into and get them involved in interviewing, maybe? We do some comment stuff and interview stuff in, in classroom, but it's quite tricky because as a facilitator, uh, you're working with multiple kids over over quite a short period of time. So you're keeping an eye as a kind of editor facilitator on six or seven, potentially up to 10 or 12 different stories at once in a two hour period where you're trying to get every kid to the same point. Um, that's quite a lot to work with. And, and whether we'd love to do stuff with interviews, but it's how we've managed that within the time constraints. We're always looking at our model, we're always, we're always reviewing it, and we're always trying to improve it. Um, but there are, there, there are corners we have to cut occasionally to be like, okay, this is, this is, you know, in order to improve our news product, it actually may be more beneficial for us not to have interviewing stuff in there. Um, or we'd love to have interviewing stuff in there. This stuff we've got in here about, I don't know, uh, just to pick something talk about it, you know, anti-misinformation stuff is, is less important for the time being, you know, we'll, we'll swap that out. Um, it's always kind of addressing that, that balance. And do you go into fact-checking as well? Yeah, as much as we can. So the, the key thing here, again, is, is, um, is like the anti-misinformation stuff is just like check, make sure you know what you're talking about. Um, that kind of critical thinking is, is key and that plays into the fact-checking stuff because... Um, one of the things we have, if you give a kid, kid an FOI and say, okay, write this story up, um, they're going to bring their own opinions in, they're going to bring their own um, biases in. And we challenge that in the newsroom, and that's one of the things that's really helpful for them. They go, okay, I've said this, but actually I can't stand it up. Um, I can't, you know, I can't actually prove that, therefore I can't write it. Um, so we, we're kind of addressing fact-checking, but it's a, bit, it's a bit of a kind of an oblique way. The first, first workshop is there is a curriculum element to it, and then we go into picking a story, choosing a story, getting an initial draft of an FOI question. Second workshop is receiving the FOI back. Okay, how do you process it? Where's the story here? Can you write a few, beginning few lines of a story? Um, and that all takes time, uh, particularly when you're working with people who've never written a story before and never written in a, in a kind of journalistic style before. Um, and then the third workshop is finishing it off. Okay, who do you want to talk to for comment? Who do you want us to address for you? Um, and, and hopefully coming off with a, ending up with a, with a draft story. So within those time constraints, you know, we could add, add an extra session and amend it, but it's, that has huge ramifications in terms of if you're scaling up over 15, 20 schools, 30 schools over the year, that all it comes into resource and stuff like that. And that brings me nicely to my next question around replicability. Uh, what were some of the key challenges and barriers that you came up against uh, when setting these projects up and what do you still find challenging? What steps or considerations would need to be taken to replicate this elsewhere? So there was a big, there was a big summit about media literacy um, a few weeks ago, and one of the one of the things we address is there's in some ways too much replicability. Um, there's a lot of curriculums that people are uh, creating on their own when there's a lot of great, you know, high class resources out there. Um, so we have our model, uh, media wise, uh, from the Guardian Foundation have their model, the Economist Foundation have their model, and those are. Uh, wonderful, wonderful media literacy organisations in the UK. There's stuff globally that's going on. There's a lot of hills you have to address if you want to start up a, a, a media literacy organisation or, or work in schools. There is the admin, there is just like, okay, getting people paid, 
running your books, getting into schools, um, do you even want to be in the schools? There's all these kinds of questions. You need to figure out your model, uh, who your target is and all of that. So one of the big, we realise this is a huge problem. Um, and one of the things we're trying to do is, is set up a, a media literacy network, a global media literacy network, addressing all of these issues. This is an emerging space. There's a lot of people trying to get into it, absolutely, as they should be. Uh, but there's also a lot of people trying to get into it not realising that some of the questions they're seeking to answer have already been answered by somebody else. So we're trying to start that network um, and, and bring people together. Um, so if you're, if you're think, interested in media literacy, if you are um, yeah, listening to this and have a media literacy organisation, particularly from, from Asia or Africa where, where this stuff is really lacking, um, we, we would love to hear from you. Uh, please get in touch with us because the more we as a, as a community can talk to each other, the more we can, we can address those problems because they are, there is a significant waste of resources currently. Right, so finally then, Robin... In an ideal world where all pupils who wanted to pursue journalism as a career had a clear and fair pathway to do so, where would we start to try and match that? What is the main barrier standing in our way? It literally has to be the national curriculum. That is, that is, the, that is the utopian ideal here. The, the critical thinking is embedded in the national curriculum. Um, digital literacy, media literacy is, is there first and foremost. In terms of improving access, uh, it's, it's just got to be news organisations going to these kids, giving them content that they actually want to, to consume, giving them people they, they relate to on screen and, and, and in print um, and over, over the radio. Um, but it's also offering them the avenues. If we can direct, the, we, we speak to a lot of kids and if we can say, look, there's an apprenticeship here that you should apply for, um, the more of those, um, those things exist, the better. Um, because one of the things we found is, is diversity of thought is incredibly important. It is crucial to what we do. We would not be able to do what we do without appropriate diversity of thought. And that, and that goes the same way for, for, I think, every kind of journalistic outlet in, in the country. Hugely interesting, Robin. And it's always a good reminder for us to think about the next generation of news audiences and the next generation of journalists too. And what could be possible with a bit more attention to media literacy and critical thinking earlier in their education but thanks so much for your time and insights and i hope to stay in touch cheers it's been a pleasure so thank you to you at home on the commute for tuning in uh, don't forget that our news wide conference is fast approaching on the 27th of november at reuters in london and we have many great names and topics announced head over to newsrewide.com for the full agenda and tickets uh, last but not least if you would like to feature on a future podcast you do know where to find us. Get in touch on Twitter at Journalism News or drop us an email. But that's all for me this week. Until next time.